0: Twenty-eight states now are party plaintiffs suing their own federal government for violating the Constitution. That has never happened before. It's never happened before.
1: I'm Dan Diamond. This is Pulse Check and That. That was Ken Cuccinelli, the Attorney General of Virginia back in 2011, speaking at a conference on faith and freedom. Politically, a lot has changed since then. Cuccinelli, a Republican, lost the Virginia governor race in 2013 and left office the next year. The state is now on its second Democratic governor in a row, and the Supreme Court upheld most of the Affordable Care Act as constitutional. But one big thing hasn't changed. Virginia hasn't expanded its Medicaid program through the Affordable Care Act, even as more than 30 other states did exactly that. For years, Democrats in Virginia got close, only to see deals fall through. But they've kept at it. Democrats have said that Medicaid is a signature issue that could help as many as 400,000 uninsured residents get covered. Here's Alfonso Lopez, a Democrat in Virginia's House of Delegates who's campaigned on expanding Medicaid.
0: We were blessed to have a baby boy, but he was born prematurely and he had to be in the NICU. We got the bill. It was over $600,000. If we didn't have insurance, if we didn't have really good health insurance, that would have been devastating for me and my family. So passing Medicaid expansion is about helping families just like mine avoid having something catastrophic like that happening to them. If someone gets sick or someone gets hurt in their family. You'll hear much more from Lopez later. And here's why.
1: Virginia, the same state that led the battle against Obamacare, could finally expand Medicaid this month. On today's episode, we're going to look at Virginia's path to possible Medicaid expansion, how we got here, and how a lawmaker like Lopez has helped push a deal forward. Just a reminder, if you like Pulse Check, rate us, review it, Share it with a friend, especially if you live in Virginia. And find me at ddiamond@politico.com at if you have suggestions for other guests and topics, like today's episode on Medicaid expansion. Let me set the scene for you. After the ACA was signed into law in 2010, conservatives and the Tea Party were surging on anti-Obama sentiment. The economy was still very bad. The unemployment rate was hovering around 10%. Meanwhile, Democrats had spent so much time and energy on health care, but the Affordable Care Act's big benefits wouldn't kick in for a few years. By 2011, approval for the Affordable Care Act fell to just 34% as Republicans were rallying against it. And Ken Cuccinelli, the Virginia Attorney General, he was the tip of the spear. Cuccinelli filed a lawsuit against the Affordable Care Act just minutes after it had been signed. Virginia was the first state to argue against the ACA's individual mandate in court. Here's Cuccinelli again.
0: I'm proud to play a role as a state attorney general. We are the last line of defense, particularly when the conservatives don't have control in Washington. Um, It falls to the states to check federal power.
1: The key legal battle went on for two years and most of the attention focused on whether the government could compel people to sign up for coverage under the mandate. But there was another challenge that centered on whether the government could expand Medicaid nationwide, as President Obama and Democrats wanted to do. Here's Cuccinelli in 2012, before the Supreme Court heard oral arguments on the ACA. The argument is that it is coercion, uh, that the Medicaid expansion is so significant a burden on the states, who have been participants mostly uh, in Medicaid for 47 years this year, Whether the expansion is so large as to amount to coercion of the states because they're now... Got that? What Cuccinelli and other Republicans were arguing was that states, which spent a portion of their own money on Medicaid, were being forced by the federal government to grow their programs, even if they didn't want to, and that it was an all-or-nothing scenario. Hold on to that thought. My colleague Jennifer Habercorn was at the Supreme Court... As the case over the ACA was being argued in March 2012, she was back at the Supreme Court that year in June as the decision was being handed down.
2: So that was probably the most stressful day of my professional life (laughs) Um, because, you know, there was all this pressure that the, you know, Supreme Court decisions do not leak ahead of time. It literally could have gone either way. Was it going to be constitutional or not? And there's a lot of pressure to get it right um, because there is no leak, so you don't even have a chance to, you know, lean one way or another.
1: The court didn't post its decisions online, so reporters had to physically be in the building as the ruling came down.
2: We grabbed the decision, and I quickly looked to see which justices signed the majority because I figured that would be a clue as to which way it went. But I remember my hands were like physically shaking and the paper was shaking and I start to read through it and I saw that they struck it or, or they ruled that it was unconstitutional under the Commerce Clause. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, the ACA just fell. Oh, my God, the ACA just fell.
1: That was the gut reaction of a lot of people. CNN and Fox News rushed on the air with mistakes in their headlines.
2: Bringing the breaking news that according to producer Bill Mears the individual mandate is not a valid of not a valid exercise of the Commerce Clause so it appears as if the Supreme Court justices have struck down the individual mandate the centerpiece of the health care legislation we have
1: breaking news here on the Fox News channel the individual mandate has been ruled unconstitutional. Of course, CNN and Fox News were wrong. The court did allow the mandate to stand just as a tax. And Jen and Politico waited a few minutes and made sure to get the story right. But the court also decided that states could refuse to participate in the Medicaid expansion if they wanted, without being penalized. And amid all the confusion over the court's ruling and the focus on the mandate, that, that Medicaid wrinkle, got largely overlooked.
2: The court did spend some time uh, talking about the Medicaid expansion and whether it was legal, but the vast majority was about other issues in the ACA. Um, and when it came down, um, it, it was a big surprise. I think we had planned a story on what it meant, but even then, you know, no one really had a great idea of what it would mean, let alone that it would be so many years later and we'd still be talking about, you know, whether states are going to expand or not.
1: Even healthcare experts who specialized in Medicaid were unprepared for what happened next.
2: And I remember the day of the ruling, I saw one of a really prominent ACA advocate outside the court, and he was just so excited that it was upheld, that the individual mandate was going to stay. And I said, so what about this Medicaid thing, you know, what does that mean? And he's like, oh, don't worry, everyone's going to expand Medicaid.
1: What those advocates didn't realize, Medicaid expansion would end up being a battle that would help define health policy for most of the decade. It was basically a natural experiment as states got to choose. And as Democrats pushed for expansion, many conservative Republicans in governors' mansions and state houses held their ground and said no. That started to change, of course. Even Republicans like Mike Pence, then the governor of Indiana, said they would expand Medicaid, but only with conditions intended. To limit cost growth. And today, as we record this podcast, 32 states and Washington, D.C. have expanded Medicaid through the Affordable Care Act. Virginia would be the 33rd. On Tuesday, I sat down with Alfonso Lopez, a Democrat who represents Arlington in Virginia's House of Delegates. He's also part of leadership as Democratic whip. Essentially, he's in charge of rounding up the votes. I asked him about his schedule as Virginia considers this final push for Medicaid expansion.
0: We're having a special session uh, beginning tomorrow to deal with uh, the budget because we weren't able to finish the budget during uh, the regular session. And so the governor has called us back, um, and we will probably be in just for tomorrow. And then the budget conferees and the appropriators will meet on Friday and then I think you'll see some kind of bill move forward. We hope uh, on Monday and Tuesday we'll come back to next week. Of next week we'll come back uh, Tuesday the seventeenth of April in the afternoon and hopefully deal with um, the uh, the budget that we should have gotten done during session. And then we'll go into reconvene, which is the veto session, to deal with the governor's vetoes and um, uh, line item amendments. On Wednesday the 18th of April. A number of U.S. congressmen have come
1: on this podcast. Representative Joe Kennedy, Senator Susan Collins. How does a state legislators job different from a U.S. congressman's?
0: Um, Well, uh, they have a a much easier life, I think, in terms of uh, they're able to focus on one thing. they their are, life is easier I as a U.S. congressman? I think their lives are easier as members of Congress because, well, first they're getting paid uh, a <laughs> normal salary. <laughs> they're doing one job. Um, uh, an old joke is that Congressman Bobby Scott, who I've known for several years and has been a, a, a real hero of mine, um, used to say that as a member of the House of Delegates or the State Senate in Virginia, you have four jobs. You have to uh, take care of your family. You have to take care of your full-time job outside of being a general assembly. You have to be a good legislator and you have to be a good politician. And you can effectively do two of those things at any one time. Which (laughs) Um, two are you doing well? uh, Depends from hour to hour. (laughs) (laughs) But the fact is that um, we are only in session 45 days in odd years, 60 days in even years. And we have to deal with approximately 3,000 bills in that time frame, and will pass anywhere between 600 and 900 um, in just two months, and so it's very different. I remember when Congress was a a normal place when they would actually have regular order and they would go through legislation. A few years ago, didn't they pass just 57 bills total that included postal naming legislation? <laughs> they were bottling up bottling up postal naming bills. Um, So I think uh, my job is very different than a member of Congress's job. One of the big issues that
1: held up the budget was Medicaid expansion. Yes. Your chamber, the House, passed
0: a version of the budget that would expand Medicaid. The Senate did not. Yes. And if you had told me just a few years ago that somehow the House of Delegates would be more progressive than the Virginia State Senate, I would have told you you were crazy. But things have changed rather dramatically. Those of us who have been in the area have seen
1: the House was historically more conservative. The State Senate was thought to be the more progressive chamber. But there was the wave election just a few months ago, where Democrats almost took over. Right. The House it was nationally watched. It came down to like a very contested, <laughs> literally of ballots. one
0: one vote and uh, uh and and a, a, a ceramic bowl and taking a name out of a ceramic bowl was what created the um went from either a power sharing agreement of 50-50 or the republicans taking control at 51-49 but um i got elected uh in 2011 and got sworn in in 2012 and we were 32 We couldn't even help a governor sustain a veto. Um, You need 34 for that. And the fact that just in seven years, we've gone from 32, which was less than a a third, less than a third of the hundred members of the House to being a hair's breadth away from uh, power sharing or the majority. Uh, And all of that, all that that entails is um, it's a a
1: huge shift. The moment when the Democrats lost that challenge with the ceramic bowl and the contested ballot, there was immediate prognosticating that this could be the end of Medicaid expansion in Virginia. But House Republicans, 20 of them, came on board and voted with Democrats to pass Medicaid expansion, at least in in your chamber. Your job is Democratic whip. So you are out there counting the votes, whipping up the votes. When did you know that you had the votes in your chamber for Medicaid expansion?
0: Um, Fairly early on, we saw some folks uh, on the Republican side who had just gone through some fairly tough elections um, make some statements that were uh, positive in regard to Medicaid expansion. Then in private conversations, and social uh, occasions during session, um, it became much more clear uh, that there was a real opportunity. And the Washington Post did a story just a week or two ago about
1: the Republicans who voted for Medicaid expansion not getting the brushback
0: that Right.
1: Advocates had warned them they
0: would face. Right. What's interesting is back during the Warner administration, um, there was a huge pushback against all of the uh, Republicans who voted with the governor on the budget. Um, uh, I think it was the, one of the first instances of calling people rhinos, Republicans in name only. They were put on these posters that went all around the state um, with you know the wanted poster. Um, and this time around, it's been not like that at all. There have been a couple delegates, uh, including Terry Kilgore, um, who've had articles done about them where they've, they've actually said that it's been uh, – the pushback has been nothing compared to what they thought it might be. A lot of the fire and brimstone <laughs> that was used against the Affordable Care Act um, has really dissipated. And what's interesting is there are some really striking numbers – out of the Commonwealth Institute about the number of folks estimated in every House of Delegates district and every state Senate district who could be helped by Medicaid expansion. And you've got folks, we all represent 83,000 people in the House of Delegates in our districts. I represent a district where it's the fourth highest number of people, women, children, families who could benefit from Medicaid expansion. 5,600 out of my 83,000 people. That's around 6%. Where are most of these other folks living? Southside Virginia, Southwest Virginia, places that need economic development, places that need a hand up, and where Medicaid expansion would save people from the prospect of catastrophic financial harm to their family if someone gets hurt or someone gets sick. And so people are hearing this, they're hearing it in their town halls, they're hearing it in the letters that are being sent to their offices, and they're hearing it on the streets on a daily basis. And so I think the, the message is coming through that um, pragmatism is uh, stronger than dogma. And this is a message that
1: seems to be resonating with state Senate Republicans, with two now suggesting that they will support Medicaid expansion, though a- different version than the version that passed your chamber.
0: Right, right. I think there is definitely some uh, work that still needs to be done in terms of uh, what Senator Emmett Hanger and Senator Frank Wagner from Virginia Beach are um, interested in seeing in a final uh, Medicaid expansion package as a part of the budget. Um, But the fact that they're willing to to move and to uh, to take these very brave stances, I think, is... uh, Uh, a harbinger of good things. They're willing
1: to move on Medicaid. I'm curious how much Democrats are willing to shift to. One of the big issues has been work requirements. Right. Whether Medicaid should be allowed to impose some
0: limits on who's able to get coverage if if you either have a job or you're seeking a job. T-O-P. We call it in the the House version, it's called T-O-P. You know, what's interesting is I sort of reject that false narrative that somehow – We're trying to keep people who are lazy uh, from getting a handout. The fact is that the vast majority of people who are in need of Medicaid expansion are working adults who simply don't have health care or are in that coverage gap. And so, you know, the fact is, though, that under the plan that we had in the House, you're still covering upwards of 300,000 people in Virginia, 300,000 women, children and families who would benefit from the peace of mind having health care. And so if it takes a work requirement, um, even a a modified one, even one that, you know, is, you know, I don't know if the devil's in the details, but over 300,000 people covered is something I'm willing to to negotiate on. So
1: just to be clear, a work requirement could be acceptable if that's what it takes to get this coverage expansion through. I, I think so, yes. Is there anything else in the Senate version of the bill that you as a House Democrat oppose?
0: Well, we don't have a Senate version of the bill yet. (laughs) Um, I'm for the provider assessment. I think that's an innovative and and intriguing way to address this. And just to debunk the jargon there, provider assessment taxes on hospitals and healthcare providers. Uh, Well, I mean, what's interesting is the Hospital Association of Virginia is actually uh, cautiously okay with doing that, because they see the overall benefit. You've got Right now, two hospitals in Virginia that have, in rural areas, that have gone out of business. Let me repeat that. Two hospitals in Virginia have gone out of business. One in, um, was it uh, Lee County? Lee County, like, that's arguably in in a county like that where you're looking for, let's forget about the healthcare issue, forget about the moral issue. Let's think about this from an economic development issue or approach. If a county that is in desperate need of economic development loses its hospital, not only do all the attendant businesses that serve that hospital lose revenue, but what CEO, what manufacturing plant, what, what owner of a business is going to move their call center, their business, their manufacturing plant into a county that doesn't have a hospital, knowing full well That the closest place that their workers can go if they have a stroke or if they have a heart attack is, in some cases, 75 miles away. And if you're in Lee County, the closest place is in West Virginia, a a state that actually expanded Medicaid. Um, It doesn't make any economic sense, in my opinion, um, not to expand Medicaid. There have been two conservative arguments against Medicaid
1: expansion. One is that somehow Medicaid coverage is worse than being uninsured or that Medicaid coverage contributed to the opioid crisis. That that argument has been largely <laughs> debunked. But there is a second argument that Medicaid is just going to be too
0: expensive to pay for long term. So see that, I mean, the New England Journal of Medicine did a, a report uh, like a year or two ago basically debunking that as well, and that states that actually expand Medicaid, their finances are are stronger. The state finances are stronger. You're actually improving overall health outcomes. Listen, expanding Medicaid means a healthier workforce. It means pre- people getting preventive care more likely than going to the emergency room. It means 30,000 new jobs in Virginia. It means a more stable health care system. Um, you're talking about helping upwards of 300,000 people, and recovering tax dollars we've already paid into the federal – But but the
1: argument isn't
0: just about
1: what happens on the state level. It's whether the federal government over the long term will keep ponying up money to keep this program running. And the Congressional Budget Office just came out with another report saying, look at the size of the deficit. It's only going to get bigger in coming years, Healthcare being a
0: big driver of federal spending. I think um, – The U.S. Senate and the U.S. House have had numerous opportunities to get rid of the Affordable Care Act. In fact, you only needed 51 votes in the U.S. Senate recently to get rid of the Affordable Care Act or try to, and they couldn't muster up the votes. The U.S. Congress has basically said they are not addressing this issue until the end of the next year. And then with midterms coming up, I doubt you'll see any kind of movement to get rid of the Affordable Care Act anytime soon. So right now, this is the law of the land. Right now, we need to actually get reimbursed and use the, the, the federal tax dollars we've already paid into the system. It is crazy for us to actually pay $5 million a day, upwards of $10 billion from Virginia taxpayers to the federal government without getting any of the benefit back from it. $5 million a day. What's the old joke from Governor Northam if, uh, as, as, a, as a brain surgeon? Um, if you told me that in some kind of business, I'd ask you to get your head examined. You had the wave election
1: here in Virginia a few months ago, almost took over the House. Northam mm-hmm. was elected. How much did Medicaid expansion contribute to Democrats' victories,
0: I think Medicaid expansion was on the lips of every single one of our candidates. It was one of the major things talked about by every statewide candidate. It was talked about by every local candidate. It was definitely spoke, spoken about by every member of the House of Delegates and every candidate for the House of delegates on the Democratic side as something that we needed to do and we need to do it immediately. If you successfully pass Medicaid expansion, do you lose one of the most important levers as a politician? To rally your base? No, because this isn't the only issue. We're also talking about gun violence prevention. We're talking about education funding. We're talking about not using, the, not using the Virginia retirement system as an ATM machine. We're talking about transit and transportation policy. We're talking about any number of other things that Democrats, I think, have a better, stronger argument than Republicans do.
1: Last question. Virginia, as a bellwether state with politics that are somewhere in the center, off your elections. You just went through one. What do you know as a Virginia politician that the rest of the country is going to find out with the midterms this year?
0: I think that the wave is only just beginning. I think you're going to see that um, what will happen in November if things continue the way they're going will surprise you in whatever state you live in. Because um, honestly— we put in the, the, the machinery in our caucus. We had all the, all the processes working really, really well. But we knew that a wave could happen, but we weren't expecting it to happen. And in recent years, we've only been able to pick up four seats in a good year. The fact that we picked up 15 seats um, and in places where we didn't expect it to happen, um, I think you're going to see that in other parts of the country as well. And they'll have studied what happened in Virginia and be able to put their... We are trying to help people every part of the country with the ways we did it, the ways it worked, the way, things that didn't work. And I think you'll see um, a lot of Democrats happy this November. Delegate Alfonso Lopez, thank you for joining Pulse Check. My pleasure. Thank you for having me.
1: That's it for Pulse Check this week. My thanks to Alfonso Lopez for sitting down to tell me about Virginia's House of Delegates and Jen Haberkorn, my colleague, for talking about her reporting process, and Mikaela Rodriguez for producing. You can find Pulse Check on all of your favorite podcast apps. My favorite is Overcast. And you can find a new episode of Pulse Check in your podcast player next week.